1: Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. David O'Brien from Goldsmiths, University of London. On this episode, I'm talking to Christopher Vitale about networkologies, a philosophy of networks for a Hyperconnected age, a manifesto. So, welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. Uh, on this episode, we're going to be talking about networkologies, a philosophy of networks for a Hyperconnected age, a manifesto, uh, which is published by Zero Books. Um, and I'm here with its author, Christopher Vitale, who is an Associate Professor of Media Studies at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Thanks for having me, Dave. Um, It's quite all right. I wonder if we could kick off by hearing a bit about your academic background and the work you've been doing in the lead up to writing the book.
0: Sure. Yeah, uh, my background's in philosophy originally, and then I moved more into comparative literature for the the doctoral work. Uh, My dissertation was on... Uh, the only openly gay author and artist of the Harlem Renaissance, which might seem a bit far from networkologies. Um, But what I found as I was writing that was that in order to speak about the intersectional forms of oppression that were dealt with by uh, Richard Bruce Nugent, uh, the person I wrote on, um, you know, and I was using Lacanian psychoanalysis and various forms of um, Deleuzeanized, you know, sort of approaches to his work. Uh, that I found I really needed to think about it in terms of networks and all the philosophy uh, that was networked in all but name, uh, that was really where I was coming from in terms of my own uh, academic projects. Uh, you know, I, I attempted to channel them into what was ultimately a literature dissertation. Um, but it, it, was, it, it was something that my advisor sort of um, – you know, pressed me to sort of not include there because they were concerned it would uh, not do well on the job market if it was too theoretical. And uh, it was once I got hired at a place like Pratt and had a ton of academic freedom that I was able to, uh, you know, really um, pursue things in a broader sense. And that's when I started to uh, do a little bit of research into cognitive science and learned about artificial neural networks. And it was an absolute revelation to me. Uh, And it led to several years of just feverish, feverish research, uh, which ultimately led to a summer at the Santa Fe Institute for Complex System Science. Um, And and it really was a complete reorientation of my academic training. I mean, I spent years, you know, learning how to read, uh, you know, uh, differential equations and, you know, the mathematics of relativity, you know, tensor calculus, things like that, to really get a sense of the science behind these things. Uh, And so, Uh, Yeah, it was just a a complete retraining, basically, uh, where I had to learn a hell of a lot of science, particularly complex system science and uh, soft computing. Uh, But I think it really gelled with the sort of Deleuzean, Lacanian philosophical background, uh, which is really where I'm coming from. Uh, And so, yeah, the the combination of those things were what really led up to, uh, you know, this work. Uh, I ended up writing about four book manuscripts uh, of the Networks project, and this was – Uh, the introduction to one of them that I finally said, you know what, rather than publish this massive monster book, uh, you know, go for something sort of streamlined that talks about the project as a whole. So I just, you know, took the introduction to what was then a much longer work and uh, published it. And right now I'm working on the follow-up, which is much more focused on the technology that inspired all of this stuff on soft computing, artificial neural networks, complex system science, uh, and how this all ties into, in particular, artificial intelligence. Um,
1: so yeah, neuroscience—a hell of a lot
0: of neuroscience in there.
1: I mean, um, it's an interesting um, lineage that that you've talked about there—the the different philosophical and, and you know more sort of hard science um, mm-hmm. disciplines you've you've engaged with. But also, you alluded to the the sort of uh, long longer term developments of the book, and it's interesting looking at the networkologies, WordPress site. Uh, there's mm. a series of documents there that um, you know provide the basis for um, for understanding the book through uh, different articles, supplemental texts, mm-hmm. uh, an original version of the Manifesto version 1.0. And I wonder if we could start there uh, with our sure. discussion, really say a bit about kind of uh, the development of the, of the book through these, these different texts.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was it, it, a couple of years in the process of really learning the science essentially, but the the philosophical foundations are pretty much uh, grounded in, I mean, I would have to say I'm a Deleuzian. I, I mean, there, there's no question in my mind about that, even though there are other philosophers that, uh, you know, are crucial inspirations here, things like Lacan and, you know, perhaps paradoxically Hegel, uh, which I, you know, find actually there's quite a bit of affinity Uh, between aspects of Hegel's thought and Deleuze's, despite Deleuze's protestations to the contrary. And, you know, there's actually some articles on my website about uh, why I believe that is. Uh, But, you know, coming from a Deleuzean perspective, uh, you know, Deleuze did not live to see the Internet he didn't live to see, I think, our networked age, the age of cell phones and social networking and all of that sort of stuff. And uh, in many senses, this project is really an attempt to bring a Deleuzean perspective to these issues and to really integrate it with the science in a way which Deleuze begins to do, uh, but doesn't really fully engage with. So I think what you see in those early articles is an attempt to tie a Deleuzean perspective into the science that I was in the process of really getting to know at that point. So some were written before I went to the Santa Fe Institute for that summer in residence and some were written afterwards. And that, that was a really transformative experience. The Santa Fe Institute's where complex system science was really developed and continues to thrive at this point. And it's, it's a really dynamic place. It's, it's quite incredible, actually.
1: It might be interesting as well, but again, before we sort of really delve into the, the text mm. itself, to, to hear a bit more about why you think Deleuze is so, is so important, uh, particularly to understanding um, the kind of the networked age.
0: Sure. I mean, I think that Deleuze is the, well, he's one of the few avenues in post-structuralism that goes beyond uh, the deconstruction of what existed previously. And this is where I find, say, Deleuze and Lacan more interesting than someone like Derrida, um, because I, I do believe there's a certain fatalism, uh, a certain sort of, um, you know, a skepticism that, that pervades Derrida about the possibility of saying something new and useful. And he does have these sort of small scale gestures in his work of, you know, creativity, but he always breaks that back down again. And, I think Deleuze is the person who really tries to create something new. And I think, you know, has a certain faith, you know, as he speaks about it, in the, you know, the belief in the world again, the belief in the, the world to give rise to new forms of creativity in art, in science, in philosophy, but not in a naive way, not in a way that looks at the post-structuralist moment, uh, which, you know, I think is really just uh, one more aspect of the massive deconstruction of certainties that we see that, you know, say Heisenberg represents in physics and Goethe and mathematics and postmodernism and broader culture. Um, you know, we see this deconstruction of so many Western standards of reference. And I think Deleuze is the, the one thinker that says, okay, we need to integrate that into our new forms of creativity, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't create anymore. So I think, Building from that, we need to ask ourselves on an ethical level, what forms of new philosophical creation fit our times and can help us imagine new potential and powerfully interesting and ethical and better futures? Uh, And and I think if we're going to do that, we need to intervene in the times in which we find ourselves. And I think the network is a particularly useful paradigm for doing that.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, that um, in, in the first part of the book, one of the things you talk about is the um, the kind of the need to move uh, forward from uh, a potential death of philosophy and to kind of reconnect philosophy to, to contemporary life, and contemporary culture. And, and I'm interested in, in, in the kind of, um, I guess, the project uh, of, of connecting uh, philosophy to contemporary culture that networkologies represents.
0: Sure. I mean, I, I think there, there's a weird... Issue at at stake here, and perhaps "weird" is the wrong word here, but it's a slippery one. uh, Where you know, some people have said to me, "Well, you know, isn't this just you know a a form of scientism that you're saying that you know that this new science of networks is you know this ultimate lens through which we can view everything?" Uh, And and it's actually a a, a much well, I think there's a need for a much more careful relationship to this. I, I think the network is a particular image. Uh, and the structure that can help us intervene within our current conjuncture in uh, Western dominant mainstream culture, right? And, and it's science. I think it's, the network provides us with an efficient um, set of sort of theoretical technologies for, um, in, for intervening. I, I think that's just the best way to put it. Uh, And I don't think it's an ultimate lens. I don't think it's for all cultures and all places and all times. I think it is a strategic uh, gesture that can be useful right now.
1: So one thing that might be uh, really good, actually, is is to unpack uh, your idea about uh, what a network is. So, so, I mean, how how are you defining network? What what do you mean with this term? Yeah,
0: well, well, I mean, I do pull from the mathematics and science on this issue because I, I do think one of the goals of the project is to bring uh, contemporary continental philosophy back into discourse with science and mathematics in ways that I think, uh, you know, there's this 20th century split uh, that we see certainly between continental philosophy and science and mathematics. And I think analytic philosophy, uh, you know, looks at itself as sort of uh, an assistant to uh, a certain idea of contemporary science. But I think that Continental philosophy is actually much more uh, potentially synergistic with the foundational work that's going on, uh, you know, not between what what Kuhn would call sort of normal science, but the sort of uh, the, the foundations work in post, well, I guess the better term would be post-foundationalist uh, approaches to mathematics and physics, you know, that sort of attempt to work at the limits of these disciplines beyond uh, what Gödel and Heisenberg and the other early researchers in quantum physics discovered. And so I think the network allows for those sorts of uh, developments to um, articulate themselves in a way that can speak to both philosophy and science. Uh, and so that, that's certainly one of the goals of the project, but it's not a, an attempt to do some sort of slavish scientism that says, well, okay, if we you know, just draw from the math and science, we're going to get things right all of a sudden. Uh, so, so the definition is, it it draws from the math and the science, but it does so in some, uh, I I would say almost delusionally perverse ways, right? It's, it sort of deconstructs itself as it goes. Uh, so there's, you know, according to the, the science of networks, you would traditionally, well, in graph theory and mathematics, frame a network as a connection of nodes and links often called vertices, um, and edges, uh, if we're talking about mathematically, you know, what the terms of graph theory are. Um, but to some extent, this is taken into account in regard to a ground or a background. And some of the science speaks about the relationship to these things. Uh, but rarely is there a fourth level. Uh, but if you look at the science of networks, uh, it's always in regard to this notion of emergence. And to my sense, there is a way in which emergence ties in with the questions of holes and parts which uh, I think emerges in mathematics in terms of set theory. Initially, uh, you know the, the sort of Russell's paradox and how uh, how does one differentiate between what's inside a system and what's outside of a system? So I think uh, the notion of what constitutes a network has to actually have four aspects to it, not the two that you sometimes see in graph theory, or even the three that you sometimes see in complex system science. But I think if you draw from all of these paradigms, you end up with four aspects. And this would be node, link, ground, and level opening onto processes of emergence. And that fourth one is quite a mouthful, but that's somewhat intentional because these parts of a network or these elements, as I like to call them, um, because they're really uh, parts would imply uh, that they're uh, symmetrical in, in the way they relate to each other. Uh, it's a fundamental asymmetry, right? Node is quite different uh, as categorically than links. Same thing with uh, grounds. And then levels are, uh, as they open onto emergence, also just fundamentally. the are differences in kind rather than degree. Let's put it that way.
1: So the, the other thing that, that is going on in, in the first part of the book, mm. as well as kind of staking out the ground of, of the project and, and preparing the way for the manifesto, It is to sketch out um, a series of principles that kind of underpin uh, networkology, which Mm. are around emergence, relation, refraction, and and imminence. And I wonder if you could say um, a little bit about each of those before we move on to tackling the manifesto itself. Sure, sure.
0: Yeah, I mean... In some way, the the four network elements—right of node, link, ground, and level—which opens onto processes of emergence. That mouthful, which you know, sometimes I'll refer to as level or emergence or process, depending on the situation. Um, I mean, on the one hand, uh, those become useful because they are used to describe how everything in experience can be reconceived in network terms. So part of the the labor of the the project is to show that that's actually possible and what that gets us, right? How it reframes certain issues. Uh, And this ends up then giving rise to a set of principles, which are sort of abstracted uh, or or rather, I guess the the way I came about it was once I started framing everything in existence, well, existence is the wrong term here, everything in experience uh, as uh, networks within networks, Uh, almost as a thought experiment, then the question for me was, well, what does this show me about the world? And are there principles that I can abstract from that, which allow me to sort of rethink other aspects uh, of my experience that might not be so immediately networkizable, uh, you know, things that would be traditionally far from the science um, in more, in terms that sort of uh, synergize with networkological notions, uh, and that's where I sort of abstracted backwards these principles and then started applying them to things uh, to see how they could be network eyes. And so the, the principle of imminence uh, relates to nodes or it's, it's it, you know, there's these areas where there's a loose coupling, uh, which is, again, a, a term from the science of networks. And, and even coupling is a, uh, not my preferred term for it. I would go for sync, right, a sort of soft assembly between various notions, Uh, that you see, uh, certainly within system science, you see a soft assembly between systems. Uh, Within the networkological conceptual structure, there is a sort of soft assembly between its aspects. Uh, And between these sort sort of networkological principles and the aspects or elements of the network diagram, right, this notion of nodes, links, grounds, and processes, um, there is this sort of soft assembly between them. Uh, and so you do end up with these principles that roughly correspond one to each element of the network, right? So the um, the principle of imminence roughly corresponds to the node. The principle of relation roughly corresponds to links. The principle of refraction roughly to grounds. And the principle of emergence, quite straightforwardly, to emergence. Um, in terms of how they play out, Uh, imminence is the notion that everything we've ever experienced is one fundamental stuff uh, and the differences that arise arise because of the way it's networked, right? The the way in which it differentiates from itself is fundamentally self differentiating and emergent. And uh, difference is a product then of this process of emergence and then re-networking and that potentiates further emergence in turn. So it's a very Deleuzean notion of networking, I'm sorry, very dualistic notion of imminence, but it is then combined with networking as the sort of flip side of it. So the reason why it used everything as one fundamental stuff is because that gets around dualistic modes of thinking and it allows for multiplicity uh, to be fundamental rather than derivative. Um, in terms of relation, it's the notion that everything is ultimately related to everything else even by its negation. Uh, And that's, again, a very Deleuzean-derived sort of notion that, um, you know, essentially when he talks about, say, disjunctive synthesis and anti-Oedipus, everything can be thought of relationally. Uh, And that's something that I think a network lens on experience gives us. Uh, It it forces us to think more relationally uh, and to sort of deconstruct the reifications, atomizations, that have been so fundamental to Western thinking, certainly since the time of Descartes and Kant, uh, and the rise of, you know, say, the Western uh, scientific revolution. Refraction uh, is where difference comes back into this. And refraction is the the notion that uh, networking is not necessarily a sameness, right? There are ways in which networking can be radically different from itself. And that is how difference manifests in the structures we encounter in our experience. Uh, And so there's an ethical aspect of this. There's the way in which refraction is the most robust form of networking, which is true to networking in and of itself. And then there's emergence, which is the way in which this all intertwines to give rise to the new, and which then sort of closes the circle and starts back up again, because it is emergence then, which gives rise to the potential
1: for I think that, that brings us to the point where it, it, it's worth, worth asking, what is the manifesto? Uh, I mean, obviously that's, that's a very big question, um, but, but the book is divided into the, the two parts, essentially the kind of uh, understanding what it is you're talking about when you talk about a philosophy of networks, and then mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. networkologies manifesto. So I wonder if you could just kind of sketch that second part of the book by, by talking yeah, to yeah. What, what the manifesto is.
0: Well, you know, I, I guess I'm curious, uh, you know, in terms of readers, uh,
1: w- what was your experience of the difference between them? Well, actually, it, it felt, it, it, it's a good question, though, that it, it felt to an extent that um, the first part of the book is, is the explanation of mm. uh, what, what it is that, that we need to think of in terms of defining our terms. So, yeah, talking through uh, what a network is, how its principles function, but also, interestingly, the kind of, um, almost political or, or ethical commitment to doing a particular kind of philosophy in uh, contemporary society that is very different from, say, um, the English analytic tradition, um, mm. which which I've been sort of working with a little bit over the past um, two months. Mm. And then the manifesto reads uh, almost like you're kind of uh, jumping into a bit of an ocean, actually. And um, you know the, the, the way it's organised that. You know, the the readers will be be able to see this themselves, are almost as a kind of series of statements around um, setting out what networks are, um, but not in in a kind of a sense of this is what we're going to do, you know, to kind of define uh, our terms, which is what is in the first half of the book, (laughs) Um, but really as a kind of a, a way of running through how we might think about the world and how we might act on the world if we are, embracing uh, networks so i mean uh, one of the things um we did when we were emailing was was to talk about um particular uh statements that are in the manifesto section uh, mm. that are about evolution about how networks think about how they become discourses of the oppressed about mm. how they are in turn a philosophy a matter of philosophy and the history of philosophy. So, yeah, I, I suppose my, my metaphor is, is almost the kind of explanation and then uh, jumping into the, the kind of the, the broader, um, almost kind of, you know, ocean of, of networkology. And, and it, it bears reading, um, I mean, the, the thing I compare it to, if this is not inappropriate, is, is, you know, the back end of Joyce's Ulysses where, you know, you kind of, you know, you jump into this thing and, and it's almost impossible to stop.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I think uh I wrote the manifesto first actually. Um, you know, just as a sort of a way to sketch out all of the potentials of this way of looking at the world. And then I said to myself, well, okay, this is really exciting and an interesting way to frame this project and sort of uh I think present it in a nutshell because it does go into so many different directions. Uh, But it does so from a network perspective, and it takes on everything from space-time to theology to ethics to politics. Um, But then I had to write an introduction, which would say, okay, like, how would you even get to this sort of point where you can say, well, what if everything's a network? Uh, And so, yeah, the the introduction really is an attempt at a very user-friendly kind of, you know, what is a network uh what's the science behind it, what inspires this? Um and you know, where do these terms come from? And and it lays it forth in just, you know, pretty straightforward terms, or at least that's the hope. Um and then the second part, you know, I just sort of took all the filters off. I was mm, like yeah, yeah, yeah. gonna go and sort of, you know, allow it to almost, you know, I, I think what was in my brain was anti oedipus Yes, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, just sort of write uh, you know, something that really showed where this thing could go uh, if I wasn't sort of fettered by the need to sort of explain everything very slowly and methodically. So the two pieces are quite different in tone.
1: Yeah, and, and I suppose actually if you weren't reading it um, in a kind of, you know, a, as a flow in a single setting, it, it does have um, that that benefit of, you know, each of the sort of uh, the statements, um, I don't know how you described them, mini essays, sections, you know, some, yep. Dodes, I think was the term from the table of contents. Yeah. You know, some are a paragraph, some, um, uh, 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 you know, a page, some are a couple of pages. And there is that, that thing where, you know, you could dip in, look at one or two, uh, you know, employ them, uh, you know, um, kind of take them as, as theoretical, uh, starting points or, or, or apply them. Um, you no, know, to to an extent, without engaging with <coughs> the rest of the notes, but equally, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. If, if, uh, it's intentionally designed that way. Mm, mm. Yeah. So I, I suppose the question um, that comes from that then is 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 maybe what would you like to see done uh, with, with with the manifesto? Oh, that's a damn good question.
0: Uh, I, I mean, I, I guess. You know, Deleuze talks about, you know, I I don't want my work to be understood. I want it to be put to work. Um, And and I I think that's an interesting notion, right, that it should give rise to novel becomings. So um, it'd be very curious to see people take stuff from this work and do something with it in ways that hopefully would surprise the hell out of me. Because that would be a way of saying, okay, well, you know, maybe there's something to this. Uh, because the entire concept of networking uh, that at least I'm arguing for is that networks are fundamentally about difference and differentiation and differencing. Uh, and that it's not, you know, that, that, that there's, if we look at networking as homogenization, which it certainly can be, um, then we're not truly getting at the way in which networks uh, provide a lens for re Emergentizing or re robustizing our relationship to experience. Uh, and so, you know, there is this push in the book for looking for the way in which networks truly give rise to the new in the world beyond humans. And, well, of course, the world of humans as well. But I think too often we keep our, our eyes on the human sphere and the way in which networks can kind of botch. Uh, You know, that's a a very Deleuzean notion, and I I really do take from Deleuze and Guattari the notion that, you know, you can botch making a body without organs, and they describe it as, you know, either cancerous or paranoid, you know, modalities, and that's something that this project very much takes on as its own, that networks can become paranoid and conservative, or they can become cancerous, and both of those are ways that networks can slip out of truly being Networked in a certain sense, and so uh, the real potential of networks is the possibility of something which is neither of those things, but which is rather emergently
1: robust. Actually, I wonder if you could uh, expand a little on that term, uh, robustness, because it, it's, it's one of the notes. Um, but but I think it, it's one of the things that um, I think is most important um, in terms of how, yeah, networks almost live or die is that question of robustness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean the the sort of maxim of network ethics, you know, and this sort of weird flip Kant on its head kind of thing uh, is let all your networks operate at maximum robustness. Um, And so the, the ethical edge of the project is really tied into this notion. What does it mean to be robust? And if we look at, say, organisms in evolutionary populations, for them to be robust means for them to be able to emerge uh, and to give rise to the new that allows for the evolution of greater complexity. And if they do that in a way which is completely parasitic on their environment, they will in the long term uh, not be able to emerge in the future, right? They'll be able to perhaps engage in short-term Forms of emergence, uh, but they will not be able to do so sustainably. And so the notion of robustness really, I think, implies that you need to have a relationship to your contexts and the emergence of your own contexts, meaning your environment, uh, which is as strong as your commitment to your own emergence into greater complexity. Mm-hmm. And so it's this notion that. You need to sort of relate to everything around you and want it to develop in as much and not just develop quantitatively, but qualitatively as well. You, you need to want your environment to thrive and change and truly grow in all. You know, when we talk about things like personal growth rather than, say, just the growth of a bank account, right, you, you need to want your environment to enrich itself, not financially, but in every sense of that. The way we use those terms. And that's the way in which, I mean, that's actually good selfishness. If you want to, in the long term, grow yourself in every possible way, you have to grow your environment. And I think that's what networks show us. And if you just grow your immediate environment, you're going to repeat the same problem, right? So you have to grow your larger environment as well and not grow it just quantitatively, but qualitatively. Because otherwise, you will eventually encounter a situation that you will not be able to deal with because you are too rigid or limited. And that's what sort of the evolution of robustness in nature shows us, that diversity in many senses of that term is
1: necessary in order for there to be sustainable emergence in the future. In terms of the sort of attentiveness to one's one's environment and Uh, And that that term you you used towards the end, uh, diversity. I think it's a a good moment to think about, um, you know, some of the practical political questions that one of the nodes raises, which is the idea of uh, being engaged with uh, and working to become a discourse of the oppressed. Um, And I wonder if you could say a little bit about that node, because I I found um, that particularly interesting because obviously, you know, it points us to, um, you know, I guess you could say things that are happening in New York, things that are happening in the United States, things that are happening in, um, you know, the broader, uh, global context as well.
0: Sure. I mean, I, I think my dream for this project, and, and it is a project in that, you know, there's several books that were written at the same time. Uh, this was the introduction to them. And now I'm, you know, feverishly editing volume two, uh, to get that ready for press. Uh, But my true hope is not that this will be a sort of philosophical project that um, is only talked about in academia uh, by people who do philosophy for a living. You know, uh, I I, I very much am inspired by the most abstract of philosophy, but I also think to myself that, you know, Althusser was being read by, you know, revolutionaries in Latin America and South America, and they found his work to be potentiating to ways of rethinking political action. And I, I feel like if my project truly succeeds, uh, it would be taken up by people who are looking to change their social situation. Uh, now, of course it's incumbent upon me then to make that, to, to make that aspect of the project become uh, viable. Uh, but I, the, the the impetus behind this all is actually on my end uh, ethical and political. Uh, you know, my, you know, sort of uh, dissertation work was about uh, issues of race and gender and sexuality. And a lot of my teaching uh, focuses on those aspects and issues of social justice. Uh, so for me, that that's the, the hope for, you know, that, that for me is the payoff that I hope comes from this project is the attempt to uh, deal with issues of oppression. Uh, and I realize it's a very roundabout approach, right? I mean, I'm going through the science of networking and, you know, uh, foundations of mathematics and quantum physics. But the, the reason for that is that I think that so often um, the, w- th- these sorts of discourses in science, mathematics, uh, even, you know, financial uh, discourses, uh, you know, we see happening in the, the Eurozone, issues that are going on right now, so often these are framed in hardcore technical language, which, you know, is used to show people that you can never understand this stuff and just leave it to the experts and people get screwed by that. And one of the goals of this project is to show that these things don't have to be understood in the way they have traditionally been understood, that networks provide new ways of thinking about quantum physics, mathematics, finance, political organization, that are, that, that can radically undermine some of the dominant discourses in anti oppressive ways and in ways that can also speak to or align with at least uh, a post anarchist, you know, politics of the oppressed. Uh, and I think one of the dangers is that it becomes top down. And so my hope is that this sort of abstract work. Uh, is taken up by people in local situations and radically transformed in ways I could never imagine, but is actually, um, you know, that, that takes the project out of my hands in some sense. That would be fantastic. And I think if that doesn't happen,
1: uh, it's because of my own faults in putting it together. I mean, as you say, with, with the last two nodes, you know, networks are a beginning um, and, and they're also a dream. And I think, I think that's a really... Hmm. Um, interesting point of of conclusion but it also takes us to one um, that allows me to ask you about what what you're doing next and and I guess you've alluded to kind of you know volume two as it were but it Mm. you know is it the network a a logical project for you know the next five ten fifteen twenty years or are there other things happening as well yeah I mean
0: I am working on uh, another book with a friend of mine that I'm co-writing at this point point. Uh, I've been teaching Buddhist philosophy, uh, at my college for the last few years. Uh, and so there's been a side project, uh, or, or a parallel project in non-Western philosophy. Um, and it's, it's not my original area of training. you know, my original area is continental philosophy. Uh, but the last several years, uh, I've, you know, done two summers worth of field work in Nepal in, in addition to just, you know, sort of massive amounts of research parallel To All that in science and mathematics. And the reason for this is that uh, there are so many forms of non-Western philosophy that are fundamentally networked. Uh, And so studying networks, oddly enough, led me to study Islamic, Neoplatonic, and Buddhist philosophy in particular. Uh, And so I've just finished writing a book manuscript that's a sort of deconstructive introduction to uh, Buddhist philosophy and you know, Buddhist studies. Um, and that's the book that, you know, I, I wrote the first draft and then, uh, my good friend, Tyler Fon, who's uh, doing his PhD at university college, London. Um, and he, he has an extraordinary background in Buddhist studies, uh, and anthropology. Uh, I showed him the manuscript for commentary and feedback and his comments were just so fantastic. I was like, would you, you know, please co-write this book with me. So that's, that's where we are now. And he brings, so many other skills to the table. He's able to read Tibetan and Sanskrit uh, and Vietnamese. And so that, that's, you know, he, and he was also raised uh, in part in a Buddhist context. And so he just brings years worth of uh, sort of expertise that I don't particularly have. Um, so that, that, you know, one of the side projects uh, parallel to this is to show the ways in which uh, non-Western philosophies and Western philosophy before the advent of Descartes was actually networked. And so there's a sort of history of philosophy aspect to this. Uh, And one of the arguments I'm making in terms of the history of philosophy is that modern Western philosophy that starts from Descartes and is sort of um, concretized by Kant is an aberration. It's a result of capitalism and the growth of the West uh, and so this sort of reified individualism as the foundation of an approach to philosophy is not something that's common in the West before the rise of Descartes. It skewed our relationship, I think, uh, in the way we retroactively have recast the history of Western philosophy. Uh, and in fact, there was no Western philosophy, certainly uh, before uh, the West as a project began to start dominating the rest of the world. Uh, And so, you know, there's a series of revisionisms that go on. Uh, So I I think, you know, Descartes, Kant, I think that sort of individualism in philosophy is a symptom uh, of the way in which Western culture was changing with the growth of capitalism and the age of exploration and the Enlightenment. And so I think if we want to think of a post-human, post-individualist philosophy, uh, we need to start looking at things before Descartes and Kant. Uh, things around Descartes and Kant, other pathways. And this is where I think the Deleuzean uh, sort of rewriting of the history of philosophy is so useful because he goes to Spinoza and Leibniz. He goes to Hume. He goes to Nietzsche as this counter history uh, of philosophy. So I think the, the West does have a networked history, but it's a counter history. Uh, and then we can go to non-Western sources as well. I think the Buddhist tradition, I think the Islamic tradition, Uh, have very, very rich potentials for networked forms of philosophy. Um, Well, I mean, they have those philosophies. They're there. They're fundamental to these traditions. And I think that is why they can speak to the West now at our particular conjuncture in ways that we might have not been ready to see the potential of these forms of philosophy 50 to 100 years ago. Uh, And of course, you know, we have to guard against all the dangers of post-colonial appropriation as we do that.
1: And are, you, are you hoping uh, yeah. for that to be published next
0: year or the year after?
1: Uh, the Buddhism book, we are
0: rewriting together slowly. Co-authoring is a slow process. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, that that is, and he just had a baby. So uh, that, yeah. that's those things down a bit. Yeah. But, yeah, that project I will be working on in tandem, uh, you know, as it develops. Uh, hopefully it will go on for more than one book uh, as well. But right now one book is basically written and in the, uh, you know, sort of, now he's going to tear it to shreds and rewrite it. Um, and, but the second Networks book, uh, which is all about the technology uh, behind the first Networks book, because, you know, the first Networks book, I mentioned complex system science. I mention artificial neural networks and soft computing, uh, but I don't describe how it works. And the second Networks book is a very detailed, careful explanation, uh, particularly about artificial neural networks, how they function, why philosophers should care and, you know, explaining not only how they function, but in ways that are philosophically relevant uh, and how that ties into philosophy of language, how that ties into contemporary neuroscience and other forms of say distributed or embodied computation that I think when you look at this as a whole really can have an impact on some of the fundamental assumptions of contemporary philosophy. Cool. Very best of luck. Oh, the, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, uh, I, I mean, I think it's necessary because I think, you know, the, the first book, it, it is a manifesto. It makes a lot of grand claims. But I think, you know, without the, the science to back it up, um, it, it can be a bit, you know, lacking foundation. And so I, this is the work that I think has to be done uh, in order to sort of, you know, ground some of those claims. Thanks for listening to New Books
1: and Critical theory. On this episode, we were talking to Crystal Assistant Professor of Critical Visual and Media Studies at the Pratt Institute of in New York. We are talking about his new zero book, Networkologies, Philosophy of Networks for the Hyperconnected Age and manifesto.